Hey, what's up everybody? It is Seth here. On this week's episode, we dive into the why of travel content creation with expat conservationist Dustin Thompson. Dustin got trained and volunteered as an anti-poaching ranger back in 2015, and he now runs a conservation fund called Global Guardians. During our conversation, he shares stories from his training and his time being a ranger, as well as the incident which impacted him and gave him the idea to create Global Guardians Conservation Fund. He shares how you can get involved in conservation, no matter where you are from, and why training in Africa can be the perfect adventure you've been looking for. This story is intimately linked with content creators because my original connection to Dustin came from a content creator named Rachel Clare. If you haven't already, I would highly recommend listening to episode 22 to hear her story. It was her photos and the people she was able to connect me with, such as Grant from episode 28, that led me to chatting with Dustin, and even Jeffrey from episode 44. That's why I think travel content creation can be such a force for good as we tell stories that matter with the content we create. Also, I just want to apologize real quick for my audio on this week's episode. I didn't realize it was clipping until we got into the editing process, so it kind of sounds like I'm on the phone with Dustin, even though I'm using a professional microphone. You'd think I'd know what I'm doing by episode 53, but uh, here we are. Even so, it's a fantastic episode, and I hope you enjoy learning more about the conservation work that is happening in Africa. Also, be sure and visit Global Guardians on the web. You can see how to get involved as well as how to donate money, which goes to fund these anti-poaching ranger programs. I'll be linking the website in the show notes, so definitely check that out after you're finished listening to the episode. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dustin. Why don't we go ahead and start and just tell me where you're at and a little bit of what led you to what you're doing, because I know you're an expat, you're, you're an Australian, um, so how the heck did you get where you are today? Uh, well, like most most stories, it's a bit of a long story. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll try to try to keep it reasonably short. But where I am today, originally it was a friend of mine that um, brought up the anti-poaching, volunteering and anti-poaching, brought it up in conversation. And yeah, we sort of chatted about it a little bit and it didn't really eventuate into anything at that point in time. Um, it was probably a year or so later that I was in more of a position to do something about it. And that led to me researching the volunteering um, in the in the anti-poaching side of things. And uh, yeah, ended up going over to Africa in 2015 and volunteered with a, with a group over there that accept uh, international volunteers as well. And yeah, that was the, the initial phase that kind of led to me starting Global Guardians. It's sort of led to where we are now. Yeah, tell me a little bit about what Global Guardians is. Yeah, yeah, okay. So just a, a small operation. What I do is promote a few organizations in Africa. So I promote them through my website, social media, and we try and help people get involved in, in those programs. Also, if they just need advice, you know, I'm always happy to, to give advice to people that are looking to travel. And then, yeah, from there, if they decide to join one of the programs, we, we help them get everything organized to, to go and do that, you know, help them decide what flights to, to book, 
you know, travel advice, safety advice, equipment that they'll need for the training, fundraising advice. Some people like to raise funds as well before they go over and their friends like to get involved and it's a good way for people to to get involved without going themselves as well. So raising funds, we sort of give some advice around that as well. And um, yeah, just generally help out and, and, and make it as smooth a transition as as possible to get over there and volunteer because it's quite a quite a big thing, especially the, the anti-poaching volunteering side of things. It's quite a big commitment. So it takes a, a bit of prep, you know, and you want to make sure people are doing it the safest and best way they can. So that's where that's where I yeah. try and try and help out. Got you. And so your focus is more on expats coming in to do volunteering, right? Yeah, it seems to have, have gone that way. That wasn't the ori- original idea when I started Global Guardians. Um, but for some reason, that's the way it's gone. I get a lot of inquiries from all over the world. Um, you know, Sweden, Canada, the US, and UK, Australia few other countries in Europe as well and um, yeah it just seems to have turned out that way that yeah a lot of international students more than local African students seem to come through my my website yeah gotcha so I'm curious about your journey kind of going back into into your story a little more when you came from Australia you got exposed to the anti-poaching pretty well how, how long ago was that now um so would have been 2015 when I originally volunteered. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So a few years ago now. Gotcha. And what kind of caught your attention at first? Like, why did you choose to move from Australia to Africa? What really lit mm. that fire in you and said, hey, this is something I'm passionate about. I want to get involved in. Good question. It was that initial conversation with my friend, and it was still sitting in the, the back of my mind. And then I was actually watching a documentary, and, and it asked a question and it was the question was what are your skill sets and how can they make a difference in the world essentially and then the conversation about volunteering came back to me and and um, I used to be in the army here in Australia and so the skill sets from the army and anti-poaching tying together pretty well and then it sort of just clicked well that's my skill set so you know this this is I'm passionate about wildlife this could be something that I can go and be good at, you know, and, and help in conservation. So yeah, I decided to, to research it and chose an organization and decided to go to Africa and volunteer in anti-poaching. <laughs> Got you. I love how you just tie in the skill sets that you have with the passions that you uh, are interested in getting into. Um, mm. I think that's so important for people to kind of understand because otherwise, you know, it helps prevent burnout later on, but it also creates um, an opportunity for you to actually really give back to what you're passionate about. Um, Mm, So that's, that's such a cool story. And when, when we're setting up this conversation, one of the things you mentioned is that you have a unique perspective as an expat coming in, working in, in conservation. Mm. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about kind of like the local perceptions or some of the challenges that you have faced as, you know, an outsider coming in and trying to, because 
I say this in the context for those listening, um, go back and listen to my conversations with like Jeffrey and Rachel and Grant. Mm. Um, the situation can be very complicated, especially like working with the locals and, you know, the whole economic side of things. So I'm curious, what have been some challenges that you've faced as an expat coming in and fighting this very much, uh, much of a problem like these rhino wars? The first thing that comes to mind is during the training, um, unfortunately in South Africa there's still quite a bit of tension between the, the black and white populations. So I noticed that a bit in training initially. They're sort of very standoffish towards each other. Not everyone, but when tensions are high, people are stressed um, as they like to stress us out during the training. <laughs> Um, those tensions seem to come out probably a bit more than you'd see in in normal society so yeah that was the the first challenge I guess trying to to get them not to see me as a a local white person who they might disagree with because of past history but as a you know someone who's there to help and and to work with them um, so that was a little bit of a challenge at first, but yeah, once you know, once you break down those barriers, everyone's normally pretty friendly. Um, and after the training, working working with the the local populations and the local people, uh, majority of the time, you know, they're, they're very friendly, happy to help. It's only the people doing the wrong thing a lot of the time that'll <laughs> that'll um, you know cause trouble. Yeah, that's that's interesting, um, especially for you as an outsider coming in. You know, you get those prejudices, and it has nothing mm. to do with you, which yeah. kind of goes back to you know. Well, that's that's a whole nother conversation, but um, <laughs> <laughs> get it, it's so hard to repair those race tensions because mm. you know there's so much ingrained hurt, just so much on either side. So being able to just talk about things and work through that is so helpful. But yeah, so tell me, tell me some about your experience, what kind of training you went through and what you've done as a conservationist on the front lines volunteering. Mm, okay. Uh, so the training we went through is very, very paramilitary style training. Um, so they teach you how to track humans and animals. Uh, they teach you how to live in the bush, survival craft, um, how to use weapons, obviously, as a last resort, hopefully. A bit of hand-to-hand combat. And then you go out and you do a lot of uh, a lot of work in the bush. There's a bit of theory, but a lot of it's in the bush, um, putting all this theory into practice. There's nothing like, you know, hands-on experience. Uh, it's tough. It was, it was tough training one of the hardest things I've done to go over there and and do that training Um, but the reward from it and and pushing through it and getting it done and then actually being able to go and put those skills into practice protecting the wildlife on the reserve um, that's you know that's what it's all about Um, yeah and some some of the the experiences uh, after the training were definitely eye-opening and a whole range of emotions to be honest <laughs> but um, there's a lot of a lot of um, exciting and new new experiences was there a moment that sticks out to you that you just kind of like hit the end of your rope or it was an 
especially challenging situation, either mentally or physically, during the training? During yeah, during the training, probably more mental for me. Going from a, a Western diet to a, a South African diet, yeah, I struggled. I struggled a lot with that. I miss miss my burgers. <laughs> um, but yeah, and not only that, so you different. were like in a you're on a bush diet as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was it. It's it's the bare you know the bare minimum to keep to keep you going. We had a ration pack that had to last us for 16 days, and yeah, just it wasn't the type of food I'm used to. So it was a quite a quite a lot of adjusting um, to be done there, but pushed through it and yeah, got it got it done. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And then did you notice that when you were volunteering, like? out there, uh, a lot of that training kind of came back to help you. I say this because sometimes you go through boot camp, you're in the military, so you go through boot mm. camp and it's kind of like a tough time, they kind of break you down and then build you up again as part of the military. And then you actually get into your real training, you know, mm. in your boot camp, the marching and all that, it was kind of this formality. But when you did the training for the anti-poaching, it was pretty, yeah, how, how was it when you got out in the field? Was it, uh, did it all come come in handy? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's kind of similar to the army training. Um, the hardest part, a lot of the time, is is the initial training for the job, and then once you've pushed through that barrier and get out into the field and put your skills into practice, um, it does seem a little bit easier because of that preparation. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if somebody was listening to this from the U.S. or you know any other country. I don't know if there's countries that you can or can't take, but this is what you specialize in. So what would be the next steps for them to go through the process if they were interested in volunteering? Um, so the, the first thing they could do would be to go to the website, have a look at, at what sort of program that they would like to join. Um, I mean, we anti-poaching is, is one of my focuses, but we do also offer a program where you can go and, and work, live and work on a conservancy in Zimbabwe. Um, and they their main goal is to breed black rhinos and release them into the wild. Um, so you can go and work on that reserve, help out with the day-to-day caregiving of the rhinos and the other animals. Um, obviously there's a bunch of other work that needs to be done to keep a, a conservancy running successfully. So you, you help out with those as well. And um, so we promote that and also a few programs up in Kenya. So yeah, you just decide what you'd like to, to go and do, get in contact with me and sort of take it from there and discuss you know where you're at and you know the ins and outs of, of getting over there and, and doing it. But that's the, you know, the first step got you and what's the website they can go to i'll put it in the show notes as well oh great yeah that's so it's www.gguardians.org awesome i'm curious how has because covid has changed the uh the the poaching scene quite a bit yeah Um, definitely how are things right now what's what's the situation it's still not that great in South Africa. They do have their borders open. People have still been contacting me wanting to travel over there. You know, it's up to individuals to, to decide whether they feel like they're safe enough to travel given the, the current global situation. But yeah, some, 
other countries are handling it better than others in Africa, just like the majority of the world. But yeah, as far as I know, it's not great, but everything's still running from um, from speaking to my contacts over there. And yeah, yeah, still seems safe to travel. I'd, I'd go over there if I could, but we can't leave the country here at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say, you're pretty locked down in Australia right now. They're, yeah. They're, yeah, they're pretty severe on that. Yeah, they have been. They have been. It's been tough not being able to go anywhere. But, you know, they've decided that's best for the time being and we'll just have to have to wait it out, I suppose. Yeah. But as far as... Uh, that's interesting. And then as far as uh, the poaching itself, um, mm. has it lessened any? Is it picking back up? Uh, what's that situation like? Because a lot of times these, these, uh, these poaching gangs for lack of a better word, um, travel internationally. Mm. Like there's a huge market in Asia um, yeah. that they smuggle rhino horns to. So how is how are things on that re- in that regard? Mm. So I think the um, I think the lockdowns affected the international side of of the wildlife trade. I think that made it a, a bit harder for them internationally. Um, but the local wildlife poaching. Um, subsistence poaching um, I believe that's gone up you know people are struggling a lot more these days as well with all the lockdowns and restrictions on on getting things that they need into the country yeah the local wildlife poaching has sort of increased a bit yeah that would make sense since uh, it's probably been a struggle economically um, because of COVID so it kind of filters down the impact happens on all levels yeah yeah exactly yeah i'm curious do you have uh any stories any moments that uh impacted you while you were volunteering like any encounters with animals Mm. or poachers or uh (laughs) yeah tell me tell me more of your experiences on the ground yeah lots (laughs) lots of uh lots of experiences on the ground the the main thing that sort of comes to mind unfortunately is a bit of a, a sad story um, that was probably the cat- catalyst to me deciding to start something like Global Guardians and, and wanting to get more people involved. Um, we had an, an incident when I was when I was volunteering well, after the training when I was volunteering. There was gunshots in the in the conservancy, um, so I was a part of a, a quick reaction force, so a small unit that when something happens in the conservancy we're on standby 24 hours and, and we react to that um, situation. So there's people on the ground in the conservancies as well. They camp out there full time and they patrol during the days to you know, check for um, any entrance into the, into the conservancy that you know, any people that aren't supposed to be in there. And also over nighttime as well, poachers tend to, tend to you know, hunt it at nighttime um, so they'll sleep out in the reserves and react to anything as well. And um, yeah, so one night there was, there was gunshots in the reserve and we heard that on the radio. So we got ready, jumped in the car and drove drove to the, the conservancy and we suspected that they would exit the conservancy at a certain point. Um, so we set up an ambush waiting for, for them to come out of the conservancy and um, yeah, they didn't. They didn't come out after about an hour or so. 
So we, we jump back in the car and there's only one main road that, that goes past the reserve. So we jumped in the car and we decided to patrol that. We figured, you know, if they're coming out on foot, there's going to be someone here to pick them up, you know, and take them across the border. Um, because where I was working wasn't too far from the Mozambique border. So they, they tend to come in, hit the rhino, get the horn and uh, make a run for the border. So mm. we just, yeah, so we decided to patrol the road and, and this car came past on, you know, going the opposite way. Um, it's one, one o'clock in the morning, so there's not, not much traffic out there. So very suspect of any cars going past at that time. And uh, we noticed them hit their brake lights three times after they went past and it sort of we all saw it in the in the rear vision mirrors and we thought mm, you know that's a little bit strange so we, we turned around and went to follow them um, and they sort of went down a little bit of a dip in the road and we lost them from sight and as we came down and saw them again they turned around and they were coming back towards us now um, so they went back past, we turned around again, that, that got our, you know, that alerted us that, that something's up. And uh, that's when the, the passenger put the light on, on the roof of the car, they put a little blue light up on the roof. And um, as soon as we did that, the, the car took off. So they were making a run for it. So we chased them, chased them into town, got the local police to, to set up a roadblock. So the local anti-poaching units work with, with the police quite a bit, um, which is good. Good to see that collaboration um, working together to try and try and stop poaching. So yeah, they, they set up a roadblock in town and we managed to stop this car in town and we did a search of it. Unfortunately, there was, there was nothing in the car, but we later learnt that the driver was the getaway driver for the two people that got the rhino in the in the conservancy um, so we unfortunately we startled him probably three four hundred meters from picking up the two poachers with the actual horn um, so yeah he he tried to draw us away from the poachers which we later found out and unless you know unless they've got something on them in the car a weapon or blood from a rhino or something there's not much you can do they just the driver just denied it, obviously. Um, although yeah. all, all the all the signs and and all the um, you know in, intel was there that that this was the guy, and um, yeah, we we later found the spot where the the two rhino poachers were sitting by the side of the road to be picked up by this guy. Um, obviously, you know you learn tracking in in um, in the training, so you can tell where people have been sitting. There's a bit of rhino blood there from the horn as well. Um, See, so yeah, that was that was very frustrating. Um, and we found, unfortunately, once once the, the sun came up, we found the, the rhino that they had shot and taken the horn, um, which, yeah, was one of the saddest moments over there. A lot of, lot of emotions, you know, after we were up for about 36 hours trying to find these guys and obviously chasing the, the getaway driver and then to have to do an autopsy as well on the rhino after after all that was 
that was sort of when it clicked after after doing the autopsy anyway that was sort of when it clicked i was like well i think i could have more of an impact getting people involved than just me being there on the ground you know if i can promote people promote these conservation efforts and and get people to to get involved i felt like i could have more of an impact doing that than than just being one person on the ground um, but you know everyone everyone plays their role and everyone has their part to do and for some people that that's enough um, but for me i felt like i had to do a little bit more that was where it sort of started to actually happen from there to to start global guardians unfortunately it was yeah that was a sad way to to begin it but that's the um, the sad reality of of what's happening to our our wildlife yeah it's usually tragedy that that pushes change <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah man that's that's so sad and is there a way to define how many people you need uh or is it just kind of the more the better yeah it is it is hard to define um my my opinion is you know we can all only do so much on an individual level but as long as you're doing what you can on an individual level if everyone did that you know the world would be a a much different place um obviously you know certain projects over in africa need more people than others um but yeah it's just it's just dependent on on what area that you want to work in um some some areas need more help than others like the have you heard of the the pangolin the little kind of scaly anteater type creature yeah i have actually um but i'm not very familiar with it uh i've seen pictures i think i was talking to grant about it um uh, yeah but describe it for uh listeners who might not have any idea what a pangolin is <laughs> okay well now you're testing me so <laughs> i think one of the best ways i could describe it for americans maybe would be similar to an armadillo yeah like a a cross between an armadillo and a anteater without no anteaters aren't scaly no but yeah. they've, got, they've got those long noses so I yeah think, it's kind of the same yeah. shape so yeah 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 maybe a, maybe but, a yeah. scaly anteater kind, kind of thing yeah yeah but the cutest cutest little things um and they're just getting absolutely hammered by by poachers at the moment i don't know if they still are but they were the the most trafficked mammal in the world um for their scales and i don't know if they eat their meat but i assume for the meat as well so you know for example that that's an area that needs needs a lot of attention in in my opinion yeah and in order to combat that like how do how do people help with combating penguin trafficking because you know people yeah like we were talking with the rhino wars it's you know go track down the uh the people hopefully before they uh the poachers hopefully before they kill the animal um mm. how do you do that with penguins well it'd be it'd be very similar um there are only there's only pangolins in certain parts of the world um so for me if i was wanting to protect them on the ground and go and volunteer um i would pick somewhere where pangolins are quite prevalent um, 
and that they're actually getting poached and then I'd go on and offer to help in that specific area. Um, if it was in an anti-poaching kind of role, I'd go and do the training first and then I'd, I'd find somewhere to, to go and put those skills into practice and help protect the pangolin. Got you. That's awesome. Well, uh, yeah, I don't want to take too much time. Are there any other stories you wanted to share or anything else you wanted to cover before we wrap up? Just the fact that just some traveling through through Africa as well, like it's not all doom and gloom with the with the wildlife. It's There's a lot of, of good stories to be had over there as well. Um, you know, it's beautiful, beautiful continent and beautiful countries over there. Um, so yeah, lots of good stories traveling through South Africa, you know, bungee jumping, um, taking surfing lessons, the, the wildlife interaction that you can have over there is absolutely amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I'd recommend getting over there. Yeah, and you kind of sparked another question in my mind. Um, so when people come and volunteer, uh, how long do they usually sign up for? Is it short term, long term? Because then they could also travel, like make a huge trip out of it as well. Yeah, yeah, right. Kill, kill two birds with the one stone, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so most people do the training and then volunteer for a short period, maybe a few weeks after the training. Um, some people go go back to their home countries for a little while and then they'll come back and and volunteer a bit more. As, as long as you keep, especially with the, the anti-poaching, you can't leave it too long between your training and actually using those skills and keeping them fresh. Um, so once once a year is probably the, the minimum that you'd want to leave it between volunteering. Um, and then other people that, that do other wildlife conservation programs, they might do it once a year, um, some do it every few years. It just really depends, I guess, on people's yeah situations and um, and money as well. Obviously, <laughs> got you. So yeah. So what uh, what are some of your favorite adventures from when you were in South Africa? I'd have to say walking on foot is one of the best things you can do over there. Game drives are nice. It's nice to be able to relax in a vehicle and, and drive around and see the wildlife. Um, but walking on foot in the bush and being on the same level as the, the wildlife and being in their territory gives you a whole different perspective, I think, on being there. Um, so yeah, yeah, getting out on foot and getting up close to the rhinos and seeing a, a, a rhino from the back of the car and then jumping out and being able to, to go on foot over and, and check it out. Um, I think that was probably the, the best part of, of going to Africa, yeah. That'd be an incredible to be so close to such a massive creature like that. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's one day, uh, now that COVID is starting to um, disappear and people are getting vaccinated, one day I hope to visit South Africa. So yeah. super excited for that. <laughs> yeah, you definitely should definitely should um and the east coast too like up in, in i haven't been to tanzania yet but up the east coast kenya and tanzania I'd, I'd highly recommend getting up there for the the wildlife um i'm sure you've heard of the serengeti mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's up in tanzania um 
huge huge area oh, okay. yeah where you can go and go and see the wildlife but i'm sure you'll get there one day if that's uh if that's what you want <laughs> yeah absolutely it it will happen it's just a matter of when yeah 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 unfortunately just a waiting game isn't it with the the situation at the moment yep well hey dustin thank you so much for uh just telling us a little bit more uh, about the the conservation efforts that are happening and how we can get involved again i'm going to link all your contact info uh in the show notes so people can get in touch if this sparks their interest and they want to help out with this and like you said, Africa is an amazing continent. Um, South Africa is a beautiful country. Um, there's so many things to explore and see. And this also gives you a, a positive way to give back while you're um, out adventuring. Uh, so now I want to wrap up with the travel trivia section. And now it's time for travel trivia. Travel trivia coming your way. First question, what's the... What's your favorite city that you've ever visited? Oh, okay, that's a tough one. <laughs> I have a hard time picking any favorites because there's so much choice these days. It's <laughs> so Is there hard. one that stands out with a with a special memory? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'd say um Jeh- uh, not Johannesburg. Cape Town, Cape Town definitely stands out. Um, beautiful city. Um, and we had a had a surfing lesson there, even though they're they're known for their great white sharks. <laughs> mm. um, decided to to risk it and go for a surf anyway. Um, and we did a bit of cage diving as well, which was yeah, that was that was a great great memory. Um, but yeah, as a city, Cape Town, yeah, love it. It's um, very vibrant, uh, lots to do, and yeah, majority of people pretty friendly. Yeah. Man, uh, yeah, cage diving. That's were you face to face with the sharks then? Yeah, yeah, we actually had one um, come up and and bump the cage, which was awesome, awesome. Yeah. That must be crazy. You're so out of your element. I don't know if I'd, mm. I, I want to try it at some point just to push me out of my comfort zone. But man, that would be terrifying. Yeah, yeah, I can't lie. It's a natural instinct to be scared of a big predator. <laughs> but uh, you yeah. do you do feel a bit safer behind the bars. If you could live anywhere in the world permanently, where would you want to live? These are all the hard questions. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I was just having this conversation the other day about certain places that that get into your blood. Um, I'd have to say Tasmania little the little Australian island um, that's where I grew up that's that's always going to be one of those places um, and Africa as well Africa and Tasmania are the two places that have really really got into my blood um, so I think I'd have to to pick one of those two I love it what is the worst food that you've ever tried um, I wasn't too keen <laughs> on the liver during the survival part of our training <laughs> during during the, the anti-poaching training we had to, to eat some liver uh, from an animal um, as a part of the survival course and yeah that was that wasn't great <laughs> was it well cooked at least oh no it, it was raw it was raw oh. 
so oh, yeah. that'd be worse. Yeah, much worse. Yeah. Oh man. If you could change one thing, one aspect about travel, what would it be? Oh, probably how long it takes to get certain places. <laughs> so if we could just reduce the, the travel time and get there, you know, maybe half the time, that'd, that'd be perfect. <laughs> I love it. Uh, what is your, well, yeah, what is, what is your best travel hack or travel tip? Um, travel tip, I think, I think for anyone going to Africa, respect the wildlife, you know, you, you get a lot of people that treat them like pets or aren't as cautious as they should be around the wildlife. Um, but yeah, just be cautious. They're wild animals, you know, treat them as such and, uh, respect their space and, and you'll be the better for it. <laughs> Yeah. Do you prefer travel by train or bus? Oh, maybe train. If it's the maybe if it's the bullet train in Japan. Then. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's awesome. Mm. Uh, do you prefer beaches or cities? I'd have to say the city. To be honest, I love the beach, but yeah, a lot more going on in the city. Yeah, all the activity in the life. Mm, yeah. Do you prefer solo travel or group travel? That de depends. Um, overall, probably group travel, but depending on the trip, like I've been to Africa solo twice and also with a group, um, and they're both both awesome. But yeah, yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> group travel. Yeah. Uh, do you prefer bl planned tours or random exploration? I will have to say planned tours on this one. I do like a little bit of structure. Not too much that you're flat out trying to meet deadlines where you're supposed to be traveling on holiday. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. little bit of structure is good. Love it. And then last question, it can be as long as you want it to be. What makes travel worth it to you personally? Yeah, from a from a personal perspective, I think it's being able to experience different cultures um, and to help as well. Depending whether you're going just for a bit an R, a bit of an R and R, or whether you're going to do some conservation work, um, you know, being able to help out is is great when you're traveling. But if you're just going for some some R and R, then um, yeah, you know, experiencing, experiencing the, the local cultures and the food um, and the sights. Love looking around. Um, love checking out different cities and different places and the geology and um, yeah, just just everything. You know, the, everything's so new and um, exciting. Thank you for being a part of today's conversation. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and come find us on social media at Travel Worth Living. This episode was edited and produced by Agnes Gretostotter with music by Vlad Glushenko. I'm your host, Seth Sutherland, and this is Travel Worth Living.